There have been some strange goings on in the Something Who bunker tonight, and now I know who's been responsible. You all have. You've sabotaged this podcast. What are you talking about? You're the cause of this. You knocked me unconscious. Don't be ridiculous. We were all knocked out. A charade. You attacked me. Absolute nonsense. And when I was lying helpless on the floor, you recorded some material without me. You can check the recordings yourself. You won't find anything wrong with them. And why would we? For what reason? Blackmail. That's why. You want to force me to leave the podcast. Oh, don't be so stupid. I know it. I'm sure of it. How dare you? Do you realise that the podcast would have sunk without trace if Paul hadn't given a detailed breakdown of all the writing decisions and curiosities in each story? And what about Giles' discussion of symbolism and important cultural reference points? You ought to get down on your hands and knees and thank us, but gratitude's the last thing you'll ever have. Ah. What is it? I think I know what the problem is. Really? Well, it's only just over a fortnight since I uploaded the last episode of Something Who. Okay, but so what? Well, that's a pretty fast return, isn't it? I guess so. The podcast was spinning out of control on a collision course with disaster, but I flicked this switch and now everything's going to be totally fine. That'll be a first. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard and we're back with Something Who podcast where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories that question whether the TARDIS is sentient. Mm. First we'll look at first Doctor story, The Edge of Destruction, or inside the spaceship, if you prefer, from the very first season. And after that, we'll examine 11th Doctor Caper, the Doctor's wife, from Series 6. And with me to decide whether these stories offer signs of independent thought or seem more mechanistic, we have writer, raconteur, and missing episodes expert, Paul. Hi, Paul. (laughs) Good evening. Uh, Can we we still say Happy New Year, or are we beyond that point, do you think? Well, I mean... It's new since the last podcast and since we last spoke to each other. So, yes, go for it. Happy New Year. You can't say that now. It's the middle of January. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Next up, we've got science and astronomy writer Giles. Yes, Happy New Year. This is obviously the uh, budget-saving episode where we've uh, we've had to reduce the the cast. We're just doing it with the regulars. We've had to amortise the cost of Simon over 13 episodes. (laughs) Look, there's a great story to be told about the TARDIS going wrong and trying to alert the Doctor and companions, but unfortunately this isn't it. Or at least, if it it is it, then um, something's gone wrong, I guess, between the page and the screen. It's Mm. it's both ahead of its time and and very much of its time. So what's Mm. good about it is ahead of its time, the idea that TARDIS is semi-sentient. Well, that's what a great idea. Yeah, but it kind of takes another fifty years to, to, for that to be paid off, doesn't it? Properly, people yeah. pretty much ignore it, apart from the odd one-liner here and then, and mm. um, eventually would have done nicely. So yeah, David Whitaker is ahead of his game there. But on the other hand, what drags it down? Well, one of the things that drags it down is that it's also very obvious time with. Sp- I'm not going to say that springs and uh, the doctor pl- proudly saying a bulb will come on to tell him if there's a problem. You know, it's also <laughs> um, it's got a big idea that's beyond science fiction I mean it's a quite a big mm. metaphysical sci-fi concept this this most advanced spaceship in the universe is not a apart from all it's on top it's all of its other wonders that we're only just beginning to understand it's also sentient brilliant but mm. then it's it's just a load of cogs and rivets because David Whitaker doesn't understand science I suppose you'd be grateful <laughs> there's not any mercury this week or mm. static, <laughs> static static but, electricity, um, yes. yeah yeah it's strange because the the idea of yeah, as you say, it's a it's a very high concept idea that you have a machine that's so so advanced that it's conscious and mm. it's trying to communicate with these p- 
people that are in you know that are inside it and is trying to trying to communicate this message as best it, as best as it can and that is a that's a great concept but yeah the the bathos if that's the term i'm looking for of, of the actual mechanics of how it goes is um it's it's most peculiar according to the production notes unless i'm misremembering this they did say that the actors the at least on episode one they got together and they were they were paying it down during rehearsals and and removing as much dialogue as they could oh. and trying to make it pinteresque the dreaded word pinteresque ah across the screen on the captions i can see why they would have wanted to do anything to add a sheen of respectability or something mm. artistic to it but it, it didn't help did it i think it probably made it worse i i just difficult to yeah. know i haven't without seeing a version which is mm. a bit more nuts and bolts and pops maybe a bit tighter logically without seeing that version i don't know whether i'd have preferred it to this mm. frankly I, I think it's unlikely there's not much i like less than this what we're given mm. here no, no matter whose <laughs> fault it is yeah, it's it's not so much Pinteresque as sort of pointeresque. You know, it sort of feels like they've they've, they've maybe had a couple of points <laughs> <laughs> come up with with you know something that everyone's got very excited about, and then it hasn't quite panned out in the. Um... I mean, it is all very juvenile, isn't it? This obsession with scissors. It is like you've got a load of sixth form actors or something in a room with a load of props, and they all grab it. And you know, when you get a certain yeah. type of amateur actor. Or not necessarily amateur, but a certain type of actor in a room and getting to improvise. Lovely they meet. Lovely cow with a scissor acting there. They go to <laughs> they go to violence, don't they, and shouting mm. and, and hysteric, yeah. hysterical argument. I mean, yeah. my least favourite thing from early Doctor Who is hysterical Susan, which we mm. had to put up quite and more than enough with in the first two stories. And here, that's almost all we get. And then it spreads. Then we get hysterical Barbara and yeah, mm. which is I mean that's the worst part of it actually because I mean generally. Jacqueline Hill seems quite sensible, but but in this one, it it all just goes a bit. Well, I, I mean, to be fair, she's better in episode two, but in episode one, it just goes a bit weird for about fifteen minutes, doesn't it? And everyone's just screaming, screaming at clocks. Well, yes, apart from apart from um, Ian, who's sort of chuckling away and appears <laughs> to think he's yeah, I'm not quite. He gets some Yes, yeah. He's the worst at the beginning. He's the one who comes off worse for the first ten minutes because he's mm. doing sinister acting, which nobody else is. So oh, he's he... meant to be sinister. I think so. He's... Right. Okay. I don't think it's in the script, so I think he's decided that that's the way to play it. But as of yet, nobody else has got that memo. And then when he stopped, when he stops, he ends up back into hysterical Caroline Ford. No, we... yeah. watch it again. I'm sure that's what he's up to. Mm. He's playing everything in a slightly weird way. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. There is weird acting too, isn't there? It's weird. Yes. It's weird, but I I found it more funny, funny ha ha than funny peculiar. I don't know, but, but not particularly what? funny ha ha. Okay, so we move on. I mean, I could have chosen Journey to the Centre of the Tardis or whatever that's called, but that that would be. I, I mean, I mean, firstly, it's not my favourite story from the new series, and secondly, I don't think that's that that's what is the key thing about. The Edge of Destruction, if there's, if there's anything about it, it's this sense of, of sentience. And I guess The Doctor's Wife by Neil Gaiman and directed by Richard Clark takes that tiny kernel of an idea and then does something quite extraordinary with it. Does. Yes. And sublime to the ridiculous. Yes, thank mm. God you no, didn't uh, saddle us with Journey <laughs> to the Centre of the Tardis. <laughs> yeah. And I'll very quickly say, I've only watched it once. Well, I only watched it twice, but the first time was when it came out in 2011 and the second time was yesterday so yeah so it was it was relatively fresh with me actually i wasn't all that taken with it the first time i saw it but i did enjoy it this time well that's good one of my favorites hmm. it's got even more in there than i remembered i knew it had a lot i knew hmm. that it had a lot of color around what i thought was a fairly simple idea but i'd forgotten what the one thing i'd forgotten is that extended horror bit where jamie uh jamie <laughs> rory and amy are are lost in uh, traps in the TARDIS, and mm. we get a strange little subplot in a completely different tone. Yeah, which isn't dissimilar to the Edge of Destruction in that he's throwing in lots of ideas how how yeah. we can make this as horrific as possible and psychological, and in the space of what must can't be much more than five minutes screen time, does rather more than the fifty minutes we get in Edge, mm. and that's not even what it's all about, is it? 
That is... Oh, good grief. I'm, I'm spotting connections here between the two. Sorry to leap in before. <laughs> that I didn't no, spot okay. earlier because I didn't make any notes. But, I mean, we actually do get the something evil has invaded the TARDIS, don't we? Yeah. For the second half, we get... It, it seems to be really... It's almost like somebody's looked at Edge of Destruction and thought, what good ideas were set up here and completely botched? And shall I have another go at them now? We're recording on the 29th of March... 2023 and exactly 10 years ago to this day the DWO fan site said that a classic series related announcement was coming and hinted that it was missing episodes related (gasps) then in June of that year the Bleeding Cool website ran a story suggesting that a large number of missing Doctor Who episodes had been found Shortly after that, Ian Levine tweeted about three tons of evidence. An email purportedly (laughs) from a Radio Wiltshire DJ, but possibly of mixed authorship, was being passed between fans. And excitement on the forums reached fever pitch. Lots of rumours were being passed around. And the number of episodes found (laughs) was often said to be 90. And then finally, in October, the Radio Times announced that the newly discovered lost Patrick Troughton episodes would be made available for digital download within a week. This was proof, surely, that all the rumours were true. But after The Enemy of the World and The Web of Fear were released, that was it. And ten years later, we still don't know the truth of it, and people still discuss their theories on forums. And there's a name given to this madness... The Omni-Rumour. So, on the 10th anniversary of it gaining broad publicity within fandom, I'm with two fellow sufferers. We've all spent more time than we care to recount pondering these matters. So, in this episode of Something Who, we'll chew over what we know for sure, what can't be true, and some of the things that might be true. I guess we should introduce the others. First up, we've got, from the Missing Episodes podcast, Tim. Hey! Hello! You've got the other one. Yeah. So, Giles, how are you these days? Hello, I'm, I'm alright, yes. I've been... The last two days I've been hobnobbing with world-renowned cosmologists, and yeah. um, and tonight I've got you two. <laughs> the, the, the world-renowned <laughs> Omni-Rumorists. <laughs> <laughs> so let's ask you the, the key question, then. In answering Tim's question, if we each did, what answer did we come up with? Did we go for... Yes, Phil Morris has still got more, or no, he hasn't. I'll I'll say I answered yes. I I I think he I think he may have something more. Why? Well, I I guess I'll say to you that that I think there are as many reasons to think yes as there are no. (laughs) And I would I'd point you to the fact, as as we said earlier, that it was five years between, or no, more than five years. That, that some of those finds that came out in 2018 had been hanging around. Yeah. I don't for one minute think he's got another 90 hanging around. I'm not even sure if it's five, but I, I feel like he's probably got something. Yeah. But I don't know what. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Giles? I didn't I didn't answer the question. I didn't see the poll in time, so... Um... What do you think, though? Has he? Sadly, I think... No, in terms of anything that was found from the period that we're talking about, I think the main thing that gives me, I, th- I think there's other, I think there are other episodes out there to be, hmm. yeah. to be, yeah, some of which they're aware of, and hopefully, you know, hopefully you may one day come back. But, but I'm not sure that Phil has them, and I, my main reason for that is the occasional quibbles that have blown up with with Ian Levine about exactly how many episodes. Yeah, that's uh, no, a good point. Yeah, it's a major fact, yeah. problem I've got mm. there in that he was pussing it about that Ian Levine had only really found eight episodes, mm. which just happens to be one fewer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, why why would you be bothered about that? Having that, the posterity of that record for having found the most, if you've got, mm. if you know you've got something yeah. that's going to blow us all away, sitting yeah. back there, you know, yeah. at, at a random point in the future. You know, Completely random point in the future. You don't have to have any great grand plan about anything. Yeah. Um, I feel like you know that's psychologically that just doesn't quite make sense. Yeah. 
Well, look, I mean, there was a Facebook post by Mrs. Morris, and I, I don't want to bring her into it particularly, but, you know, that is social media. Mm. And um, somebody created a Indiana Jones, Philip Morris graphic, and some friend or relative commented, what's that about? And she responded, this was back about 2014, Philip finds a missing television overseas and has found this, that, the other and many, many more or something like that, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. So that lives with me. And also, there's very good cause that people thought he had more in 2013. Mm. And logically, I can't believe it was just made up. I can't believe it was just wishful thinking. There's this tension between what he says, that things were thrown in crates and ended up where they shouldn't be, versus what the paperwork says and the great logic deployed by people like John Preddle that says well they wouldn't have sent that on I can't quite wrestle that but you know I'm sort of 51% he has but I'm very relaxed about it whether we get to see them or not I don't know but I think I think the preponderance of evidence is that he has and there's probably quite a few but you know I'm over it yeah mm. if you know what I mean I I I certainly would not be surprised if he at some point handed over Marco Polo and Power of the Daleks. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think, I'm not like thinking he's definitely got them, but I'd be like, yeah, okay. What, what, what's that, Phil? You found them in, you found them in a, a, an old sea chest in Bermuda last year, did you? Okay, mate. Yeah, fine. Do you, do you know what I mean? I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. But then again, I'm over the disappointment of things not turning up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I kind of feel about it a bit like you know, when I when I first became a fan. So this, I mean, firstly, there was the the Terence Dix making a Doctor Who when he explained that some episodes were gone and were, were never coming back, and then there was the that thing that came out the the Doctor Who Winter Special and it listed exactly well, it wasn't quite right, but it listed pretty much you know what was there and what wasn't yeah and on the one hand i was really kind of gutted about all the stuff that was missing but then on the other hand all the stuff that they still had when was i ever going to see it i mean you know it was yeah. stuck away in, in a vault somewhere yeah and and as it happened i suppose over the next 20 years some of that became available but i kind of feel like that you know i mean if if, if he does have more it's not anywhere where i can see it or get to so it's kind of not really worth getting that excited yeah. about i think the issue i think the the, the main issue that people's say no they don't think he has more is a the time well i'm not yeah. i'm personally i'm not worried about the time and no. it's b the money yeah why isn't he cashing these in well the guy exists he is still working overseas his accounts might not show a profitable business but he's still got a vested interest in not talking about what he's up to hmm. for whatever reasons now i happen to have opinions and bit of inside knowledge as to what he's up to but I, I, I can't share that no publicly but you know I find it plausible that he's held on to stuff mm. Casterbrus with a K podcast his father-in-law was on there saying there are hundreds of films here waiting to go back to the copyright holders mm. does that does that mean back to the BBC or does that mean back to Nigeria I don't know but it's still possible that he meant the BBC or or the BFI or or whatever, and but I'm fine with it. It's up to him. He's not doing himself any favors, but I'm fine with it. Yeah, I mean these the, these films, they don't they don't belong to anyone other than the person who has them. So that's right. Yeah, there's yeah there's no point in getting indignant about it. So I've been aware for a while of an independent film called Doctor Who Am I? And recently I've had the chance to watch it on DVD, though it's now widely available in the UK on a variety of platforms. And very excitingly for me today, I'm talking with Matthew and Vanessa, who created the film. So I wonder if you'd introduce yourselves, please, to the listeners of the podcast. My name is Vanessa Yule, and I am the co-director and editor of Doctor Who Am I? It's... Uh... A journey with me and uh, my co-director. Take it away. 
I'm Matthew Jacobs, and I'm co-director, and we're actually co-producers as well. You're looking at American Anorak, this is the <laughs> two of us. And Matthew is the writer of the 1996 Doctor Who TV. Oh, movie. yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> so the start of, of the of the film, you say something that's interesting. You said, I didn't go to conventions for a very good reason. I thought the fans would kill me, yeah. um, which is, you know, it's an interesting statement. I, I mean, did, did, well, I didn't was, think was, they'd literally kill me. No, no, no. But, I, but, it would but, make a really good documentary. It would. Well, that was kind of where it came from in some yeah. ways. In 2015, end of 2014, Vanessa and I met up and she didn't know that I had even written a Doctor Who. And I was being invited to conventions all over the place. And we thought it would be an interesting, it, it would just be an interesting adventure. We didn't really know what would happen at that time, but it certainly was a fear of mine because the, the reaction had been quite vitriolic against the half human thing, certainly, you know, in the over the years and so i didn't really understand the nature of fandom at that point at all so it was fascinating for us to sort of make this journey well it just seemed like a comedic setup because i know matthew matthew's very funny and as i didn't know that he wrote the eighth doctor even though i know he'd written indiana jones and you know emperor's new groove he never talked about it but it just seemed like it would be a great setup. It just seemed funny. And then Matthew also saw that it could be funny. I just, the fact that fans went crazy about the doctor being half human or kissing his companion, I thought that was just kind of funny. Like, wow, people get so passionate about these choices that he made. And so it was then within two months, we had pulled together a small crew and started filming. So it was very, very quick from the idea to actually filming. It was like, yeah, yeah let's just make a movie. I mean, there's, there's that moment that you capture, I think, Matthew, in, in the documentary where, you know, somebody comes to you for an autograph. And I suppose, you know, for the, you, you know, there's, there's, there's the, say you say $20 a signature for that kind of two, five minutes, however long it is, you belong to them, I suppose, in that moment. And they have, a, have that kind of very intense personal experience. And then I guess it's over and done with. Yeah, I've got better at it. Um, <laughs> it was like what you Much see in better. the documentary. What you see in the doc, yeah, but what you see in the documentary is literally the first couple of times that I signed anything, really. Yeah, and so I'm very like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, give me the money, go. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and then bit by bit, I start becoming. I start enjoying it. Really, I mean. Paul McGann is interviewed in the film quite a bit. And yeah. he's like, uh, we often say, he's like the sort of Yoda of the story. And he and he sort of points out the simple joy that's involved for both sides of people meeting people who have been part of creating things, something they love. And it's just as joyous, I think, for the creators, really, to be getting that familiarity and that love that comes from from people. Well, just just that it's it's really a lovely feeling. I mean, I've been traveling around with the Doctor Who actors this year, haven't we, Vanessa? It's been like mm -hmm. it's these people, these people, um, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who actors who are on the road like all year, yeah. all over the world, traveling around. I mean, I don't know how long Fraser Hines has been doing it. He's he's been doing it since the eighties. Yeah. I don't know how he gets up in the morning but it's, it's kind of like it's it's incredible it's definitely a world it's a fascinating yeah. world yeah for the most part writers are the, are the sort of poor poor relatives well in doctor who it seems like they're a bit more they are yeah. definitely i mean if russell t davis wants to go anywhere so you know that but 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 they don't really what was that <laughs> Someone literally with a pneumatic drill wow. drilling outside the apartment. So I don't think there's anything I could do about that. They are they are literally outside that window. Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> going through the deck. They don't bring the house down. <laughs> that is that. This is not going to be usable, is it? Or no. it'll just be a funny interlude. 
It's a funny interlude. It's fine. Yeah, it's we'll find a way of making it work. Can get into move. go let into the corner. Can, yeah, let me see if I can move somewhere else. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can move away. But they are literally just outside the window with a, with a with a pneumatic drill right about. Let's just keep going and yeah. see what happens. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, mean, I was, I was going to say, I mean, you, you kind of uh, made the point already, but I mean, Paul McGann is a star, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a genuine movie star. Whereas I guess, you, you know, some of the other, some of the other actors you've talked about, and, and, and I, I guess you as well, it, it, you become a star in that particular setting, but it's not, it's not sort of naturally happening to you. That's right. That's absolutely right. Um, but I'm so, I'm, most definitely starstruck. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got pneumatic drill outside the tent. Get me out of here. My head's too big to get to the front door. <laughs> With us this time, we have writer Simon Guerrier, well known for writing works of both fiction and non-fiction and making contributions to the Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray ranges. And currently, he's the author of David Whittaker in an exciting adventure with television, which tells the little-known story of the man who was Doctor Who's first story editor, and also a prolific writer of quality stories from the show's first decade. Simon, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Well, it's exciting for all of us, I think. Look, we've not been around for a while, and it's all kicked off in our absence. It seems to me that RTD has finally made good on Stephen Moffat's 50th anniversary promise of more Doctor Who than ever before. Mm. All, on, all on the iPlayer. Isn't it exciting that we could do our homework on iPlayer? I thought <laughs> that there was a particular thrill of going, oh, I can just look that up. It's right there in front of me. Um, mm. I don't, even, I don't ha- even have to reach over to the shelf to take down a DVD. <laughs> mm. It definitely saved me some faffing around because we've been having our... Uh living room done over all the av equipment and stuff is currently cluttering up my study so i've um, i've not had enough room to, so i've had to have gone and plugged everything in again from scratch and then found the dvd the one thing that i that surprised me i didn't see this coming is that not only have there been no missing episodes for the 60th anniversary but we've actually gone and lost four other ones <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. There, 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 there will always be 101 missing episodes on the iPlayer. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, that's all we need to say about that, isn't it? I'm, I'm glad that you can still make light of it. There's nothing upsetting about this situation at all. No? And we're going to lose four more episodes at, um, on November 23rd, aren't we? And suddenly they're cutting the Daleks <laughs> in half. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's in full colour. Yeah, this is true. And we get both. That's not that's not taking away, no, that's adding. No, no. Yeah, exactly. It's just the, um, the attitude of some people. Yeah. It's a bit like... Uh... I'm looking forward to that. Of all the many things that are interesting about it, I'm keen to see what Mark Ayers has done with the music. Will it be a completely new score? Or do you think he, it will be inspired by the original atmospherics of Tristan Carey, but modernised? We shall see. Hmm. But I don't mind if it's just another score of Mark Ayers, because he's one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting. It, and it's it's just that idea that, that, I mean, I spend my whole time engaging in Doctor Who in one form or another, you know, tr- trying to tell new stories that are based on it or, 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 or find things to say about it and features and stuff. And um, the kind of hope is that this version of the Daleks will kind of encourage people who'd never normally watch that story to kind of dig into it. I find that really exciting that, that that there's the potential for a whole new audience to come crash in on us and basically tell us that we've been getting it wrong all this time. I remember the excitement when Tomb of the Cybermen was found and came out on video and suddenly everybody could watch it and didn't just have to take the word of the people who'd seen it back in the 60s. And it kind of completely changed a lot of the the kind of narratives about about Doctor Who and what was a good story and what was a different story and kind of allowed people to have their own opinions. So yeah, I'm kind of hoping we'll see something similar to that. It's it's potentially very very exciting. My name's Ben. I'm the editor of the Daleks in Color. I'm the person responsible for hacking out all of your favourite bits. <laughs> Fantastic. 
My name's Richard. I was the lead colorization artist on the Daleks, and I'm responsible for all the colors that you didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Timothy K. Brown, known online as That's Chroma. And yeah, I colored you in under Richard's direction, basically. Yeah. I have been watching Doctor Who for over 50 years. But I think the moment that I trace back to becoming a fan was when I bought the Target book Doctor Who and the Daleks by David Whittaker in 1975. Uh, that story really grabbed me, and it's still a favourite of mine. Unfortunately, back in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't just go and watch a Doctor Who story when you wanted to. I didn't actually see any of it until the early 80s. They showed episode two at a cinema in Bradford when I went to, to along to that. And I didn't see the rest of the story until right at the end of the 80s when it came out on VHS. So you were left, you were left on a cliffhanger for how many years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it must have been about seven years or something like that. Yeah, as, as, as they were still in the cell. Uh, well, in fact, Susan was, was uh, in the TARDIS and trying to decide whether she dared go back. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's been with me a long time. I was fascinated to see what it would look, look like in colour and also intrigued by what it would be like to have a 75-minute version. I have to say I enjoyed it very much, but it did have a different feeling from the original, and, and you know, maybe we can talk about that. And on something who we, we typically talk about storytelling, I mean, that's the thing that interests us. And I guess what might be interesting to explore is how the, some of the choices that you made along the way influenced you know, how the story is, is, is told. And I guess the, the first thing to, to kick off with was, was 75 minutes an explicit part of your brief? I mean, was it, was it getting it down to a, a specific amount of time or was it just trying to get it down to an amount that would be watchable? It, it sort of was part of the brief, yeah. I mean, it, uh, partly with the sort of the, the carrot being dangled on the stick of, well, if we can get it down to, to about 75 minutes, we can get it on the telly. Right. For a project that is... It's for Doctor Who fans, it's for everyone, but also we're really hoping we're going to get some of those, you know, we were going to get some of those 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds watching who might not have experienced any classic Doctor Who, who might not have experienced 60s Doctor Who before. It was quite important to us to try and get it down to, yeah, a nice tight 75 minutes. And you mentioned that book, which I should correct you, I should give it its title, Doctor Who <laughs> in an Exciting Adventure with the Daleks, because that is the greatest title for any Doctor Who book ever. And that book yeah. was, was, was part of the inspiration. You know, what's remarkable about that original Dalek serial is that it aired at the end of 63 into 64. And that book came out when it was it was sort of summer of 64. So within just a few months of the TV version, it would, it, you know, there was already an alternative rewriting of it. Uh, uh, you know, someone had already remixed it, albeit David Whittaker, who was allowed because he was the show's story editor. And then within another year, there was that first Cushing movie, which again reworked mm. the story hugely again. And within another year, there was the American comic book, which again took, took liberties with all sorts of stuff. So that, so that first Dalek story had been, you know, reworked and remixed so many times before William Hartnell had even regenerated into Patrick Troughton. So we were sort of taking our cues from that. So my own fond memories of that David Whittaker book and the Cushing movie and all of it, really. Mm. Rich, how how did the thought of colorizing 75 minutes, was that was that terrifying or was that did that feel like something that was manageable? It was utterly terrifying, I think, definitely on the, on the terrifying side of things. <laughs> you know, I, I'd gone from a place where, you know, I could spend six, seven months on a two, three minute YouTube clip. I would really make sure yeah. it was perfect and it was exactly how I wanted it to be. To being briefed on this is the this is the execution, this is what we need to deliver. Having a brilliant team of people with me. I, I'm very lucky, I think. The relationship I had with Kieran and Scott, particularly because we'd worked on Day of Armageddon, yeah. so that we had we had a workflow that the three of us already knew. So that was a bit of a lifesaver and I'd say even though that project took like an astonishing amount of time about 25% of it came together in the last year so we had an idea of actually how this is going to work for us but there's you know even with that you know we knew we would need to we'd need, we'd need a, a fourth person we'd need the incredibly talented Timothy Hay Brown who thankfully agreed to uh, join our merry band of colorizers um, but yeah <laughs> but even with that even with the four of us working on it it was um, it was a daunting proposition doing 75 minutes particularly at the standard we wanted to achieve so I would say that if we're looking at it purely from a technical standpoint 
the Daleks is a really terrible choice because they got <laughs> right. to suppress field episodes, which is a four or five line picture. Only 377 of those are actual image. Yeah. And so the suppressed field ones, they're 188 lines maximum. That's really, that's nothing basically. Yeah. And it's very steppy and coarse and horrible. And also the studio cameras they were using were kind of out of date even then. I mean, they were installed in the mid-50s, and they have mm. very smeary, laggy, noisy pictures. So you combine all this together, it's quite difficult. Whenever, whenever anything moves, it just goes fuzzy. And it's really difficult yeah. to keep the colors aligned with the fuzziness. Right. You know, Rich, if you found it similarly challenging, more challenging than pretty much anything else. Yeah, just Definitely. I mean, a colorization is only as good as the, the image you're applying it to in so yeah. many respects that like you need to have a nice dynamic range. You need to have a lovely mix of sort of grays in there as well. And the starker out of the image and the less quality in the image, then that's going to reflect in the colorization. I, I was asked, when I was first brought on board, which is about two years ago, I was asked to sort of prepare a document just talking about how we could do it and going around all sorts of ideas and one of the things i said right at the top of that was that what we are doing is sacrilegious <laughs> and we know it and we knew we knew two years ago that a lot of people would love this some people wouldn't and ian levine really wouldn't and we knew that going in and and the, the reaction has sort of blown us away what's been absolutely lovely is how many kids seem to have watched and stuck with it for the 75 minutes that's sort of you know, validating, vindicating Russell's vision, which was when he came back as showrunner, not just to sort of bring David and Catherine back and, and cut a new Doctor and a whole new era. It was to revitalise the archive. And you've seen the first part of that with everything going up on iPlayer and things like Tales of the TARDIS. But this sort of colorization project was a big part of that too. And to hear that mm -hmm. so many people's sort of five-year-olds and seven-year-olds and 16-year-olds have, have, have been watching has just been glorious the twitter reaction seems to have been mostly really positive instagram reaction seems to be audience reaction lovely within 20 minutes of the end credits rolling the telegraph had already posted a five-star review which is amazing i should point out star beast two two days later only got four stars from the telegraph so there we go you go on to you know gallifrey based doctor who forum and of course the opinion is more mixed yeah. what was lovely though i will say and this is god's honest truth as i did I did briefly check out, Yes, I think the first, I picked a page at random to see what people were saying. The first post was really nice. The second one was really angry about it. The next one was sort of really nice. And there were a couple more angry ones, a couple more nice ones. But each one, and I think it was maybe just luck of the draw, the page I picked at random. But the first angry post I saw said that they, they didn't like it. They didn't approve, especially of the, of the cut down edit. But they were sat there with their girlfriend who'd never seen any 60s Doctor Who before. And she really loved it, but hey. And then the next angry post said that they didn't like it but they had been watching with their two and seven year old who were transfixed so quoting that verbatim i promise and the next <laughs> one who said they didn't like it they, uh, they they didn't like it but their sister who'd never seen doc two before called them to say that she absolutely loved it and so i was starting to notice a bit of a pattern there and then i, I logged out of gallifrey base and haven't been back so our new something who co-host is an ai bot well, it's all the rage. Are you trying to get rid of us? After we brought you nothing but fame and success. Look, just think of it as a nice bit of competitive tension. Do people ever hit you? Well, no more than twice a day. So, what can it do? Well, these AI bots are fairly simple. It can come up with an opinion when fed with information, but it can't explain why. Hello, bot. Good evening. How may I assist? Well, what did you make of the Sunmakers and Oxygen? Opinions are available for personal use only at competitive prices. Hmm. Look, I'm from Yorkshire, and you three are free. I tell you what, Bot, I wish I could say it's been nice knowing you, but you're fired. Simon, what did you make of the stories? Well, Richard... Any unlicensed opinion will be automatically expelled to protect market value. There's no escape, Richard. You'll have to get your wallet out. Hang on. Isn't that an opinion? Yes, I suppose it is. Because it said expelled? 
What's that? Oh no, it's removing us from the podcast. Christopher Barry's notes on an earlier draft of the script survive, and I've not seen the originals, but both Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes have written about what's in them in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. And there seems to have been a point where Bennett wasn't Coquillian, and Coquillian was an extra character. And Christopher Barry's notes were kind of suggesting, you know, what what is motivating Coquillian? Why is he doing this? Is he just bad? And in Mm. working that out they make him Bennett, mm. which I find quite interesting. interesting. And then the other... Wow. Go on. And I was going to say, the other thing I find really interesting is that the story was commissioned because they weren't quite sure what they were going to do after the original 52-episode run of Doctor Who at the end of that production yeah. block, which finishes with the Dalek invasion of Earth. So as I'm sure you know, the, the original plan was that they were going to introduce a new character to take over from Susan in that story. And having said goodbye to Susan, they'd then find this new character had stowed away in the TARDIS. Mm. But because they weren't sure what was going to happen next, Donald Bavistock, a bit like he did the year before with The Edge of Destruction, was kind of like, well, let's finish it with the, the Dalek invasion of Earth and then introduce the new character in a two-part story that follows it but also at the time he was saying that they weren't sure that barbara and ian were going to continue in the series they uh, uh jacqueline hill and william russell weren't contracted until the end of september 64 so the rescue was probably conceived to introduce a whole new family of characters if need Ooh. be ah. okay or it could have been if Barbara had stayed on, it would have introduced two new characters. If Ian had stayed on, it would have introduced two new... So there's all of that, which I find quite... Uh-huh. There's a kind of... I'm not sure when David Whitaker began writing, but certainly in conception, that must have been in the mix, which is why it's a passenger ship. There could have been any number of survivors, any mm. combination of survivors and Vicky to make that work. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, yeah, and, and I, I guess also combining the characters of, of Bennett and Coquillian saved them £2.50 in the budget as well. Yeah, well, there's always that. <laughs> a, a genu- generally, it's, it's something that Big Finish picked up fairly early. The fewer characters you have, the more they all get to do and the better the characterization is. Mm. So, yeah, you can see that in, in just a it's, a... it's a quite a good story editing thing of just going, these two characters, if they're the same person, they're just a more interesting character. Hmm. It's interesting, but just because it, it's a case where you look at the story and you think, well, that's the entire the entire mechanic of it, and that that was the idea, and they wrote the whole thing from there, and it turns out to be, hmm. you know, like a, a later thing that was then retrofitted into that's... it, and yet it feels like it's the entire, the entire gimmick of the story. That's two separate what-ifs that Simon's outlined to us, and I... Either one of them makes the story less interesting and more commonplace, I think. If it's mm. not got that enormous twist, it's less interesting. If it's not got that um, claustrophobic atmosphere with tightly controlled number of characters, it makes me wonder. I'm fascinated by the idea that it was the director, Christopher Barry, who thought it needed a little something extra. And that two very experienced writers, David Whittaker and his script editor, Dennis Spooner, were perfectly happy with with the original idea, and it was the director. It also makes me wonder if that has any bearing on the thing I was going to say way back when Richard called it Who Done It, and I didn't mean to be pedantic because I know you didn't mean it literally. But of course, it isn't a Who Done It. It's almost like an inverse Who Done It. There is no mystery. We don't spend the fifty minutes wondering what's going on, who is Coquillian, what's. We're perfectly happy to take things for granted, to take Bennett's story for granted, to take for granted that Coquillian is the villain he appears to be. And the twist, I, won't say, I don't mean it comes out of nowhere in a bad way, but it's, it's the opposite of a twist that we're, look, we're waiting for. It's not an explanation for mysterious events. It's an extra bit of business, an extra bit of fun, which takes the story up to another level. So it's fascinating, the thought that that might have come out of, hmm... Christopher Barry's note seems to be Coquillian in the early draft was just bad and 
he needed a bit more motivation and a bit of an explanation for what it is that's driving him. Mm. And one suggestion is that he he would want to take over the TARDIS and things. And I think by by combining the characters, you just get oh, it you know Bennett is trying to cover up a crime, and that's what this is about. Yep. And that's and that's interestingly mundane, isn't it? That he's just a criminal. And as the doctor says, you and they they really big it up. He's not just killed one or two people to cover up his crime. He's almost destroyed entire committed genocide to cover up mm. his own crime, which elevates him from a, a mundane criminal to uh, an unintentional you know, supervillain. He's a very very evil man. And he's trying to bump off Barbara as well, yeah. despite the fact that that you know she has no bearing really on whether he's. I mean, I guess the more people that you bump off, the more danger you've got of revealing the fact that you're bumping people off. When all, what he's done so far is get rid of all the people who knew that he had committed the murder. But uh, I, you know, I, I mean, I guess maybe you just you just get into the <clears throat> into you know you can't stop yourself. I don't know. I'm, I, I've never been a serial well, killer, so I can't really. <laughs> Yeah, it's a common common problem once you start down that path. You just, you know, the more you have to kill more people to cover your tracks. You have to kill more people because you just, because it's just so much fun. But either way, once you pop, you can't stop. What I found really interesting watching it for this is that a lot of the beats of that, which is that Vicky is quite, what's the word? She's quite forthright. She doesn't warm to them immediately. She's resistant. The doctor starts talking to her about traveling in time and space and he doesn't she doesn't believe him. And she's won over by this confrontation with the monster. And also part of her fire is she's a bit of a tragic character. She's an orphan. That's all Amy Pond as well in the 11th (laughs) hour. Mm. It's all the same kind of beats is Mm. the same, which I I would have never have made a connection to um, otherwise. That's good. The, the doctor warms to Vicky very quickly. I mean, it's within, you know, almost seconds, I suppose, of the two characters coming together that he's sitting down and exercising charm. So, yes. I, I, in fact, I wrote down a moment of charm. It's, you know, Pertwee-esque almost. You know, he's, he's, uh, turns it on full, full bore. It's, it's lovely. And it's, it's exactly, it's doing exactly the same thing as Matt Smith with the apple, with uh, Amy Bond, yeah. kind of winning her over to this mad world that that he's part of and yeah i I do think it's rather deftly done so this is david whittaker's first freelance contribution it's a it's presumably his first freelance piece of writing because it's as you say he actually starts it while he's still contracted to the bbc although they can't say that and then he goes on and fairly soon afterwards writes the crusade it's a bit more it's a bit more complicated than that Go on, then. Um, so he wrote The Edge of Destruction freelance as well. Okay. But since he began at the BBC in 1957, he wrote an awful lot of stuff freelance. He was very, very busy. So he was probably earning in his... Before he got Doctor Who, when he was a script editor in Light Entertainment and on the Sunday night play, he was probably earning about 1,800 quid as a salary. He had an allowance and was meeting it and kind of going over the top of his allowance to write another thousand pounds worth of material in his own time. So he was effectively adding to his salary by 50%. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of writing. What happens in about October 1963, around the time he's commissioned to write what becomes The Edge of Destruction, is the Writers Guild... It wasn't called the Writers Guild at that point, I don't think. But but what is now the Writers Guild of Great Britain began to get very exercised about what they referred to as shopping down the corridor. Oh. Uh, script editors and story editors commissioning each other and it kind of being a closed shop. And that seems to be why David didn't write a longer story for the first year of Doctor Who. There was a, the, For a while it looked like he was going to write a story about the Spanish Armada. He may have earmarked the French Revolution story for himself as well. He couldn't do that. And all his writing outside of Doctor Who, outside of his staff job, stops as well. He, In the period he's on uh, Story Editor of Doctor Who, he gets one comedy sketch on TV. 
that's it which is compared to what he was doing the year before is mm. where he wrote seven episodes of compact and sketches and songs and whatever else mm. so i think that's partly why he leaves because it's mm. he can't he, he can't take up these opportunities he's being offered and what he does is he is he then goes off and does the novelization of the daleks and he does the dalek annual so he's still the creative output is still as extraordinary and prolific but it's not working in television once he's he he delivers the rescue as i say before he leaves there's certainly paperwork saying that they had scripts before the end of october 64 he's commissioned on the 1st of november for that story retroactively and for the crusade and i think the crusade is the first story he writes outside the building so to speak okay and I think yeah. you can see a marked difference. He's trying to do adult drama yeah. and quite and pushing the boundaries of what Doctor Who can be. And I think you can see that in the Crusade. There's a there's a you know there's some extraordinary stuff in the Crusade for a, for what's a yeah. family show. And I think that's him trying to escape the shadow of Doctor Who. That's about as far as we can go without getting too off topic for this podcast. But if, yeah, if yeah. anybody doesn't know the story, what happens to David Whittaker? in his last years on Doctor Who and beyond, then do rush off and watch the uh, documentary. Where was it? <laughs> what was it on again? And, 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 and buy Simon's book. And the book, yes. <laughs> oh, forget yes. the documentary. Burn your DVDs. <laughs> buy the book. Yeah. Yes, there's, a, there's a, a documentary Looking for David yeah. made by Chris Chapman and Toby Haydick, on which mm. I was their kind of assistant, which is on the season two yeah. set. Oh, of course, that's where it was, yes. Mm. So, I mean, everyone has seen it. But if you haven't... I mean, you won't you won't see it coming. It's it's extraordinary and horrific. Oh, bless you! But uh, all, not, all I was going to say is, I think the rest not your documentary. So I mean, <laughs> the horrific. The, the second adjective was <laughs> yes. All I was going to say is, I think the rescue then is the sort of closing bit of David Whittaker. It's it, he he delivers the you know he certainly worked on the final scene in Dalek Invasion of Earth. We can see what the, the, the scripts survive where we can see what Terry Nation wrote. We can see how David Whittaker polished mm. that final speech from William Hartnell. It, it, Terry Nation wrote what was much more uh, dialogue between the Doctor and Susan. David Whittaker makes it much more a speech from the Doctor, a much more heroic kind right. of speech and really lays into it. And then the cast kind of polish that and take out it's a bit overwrought in David's version and the cast cut some of it and make it sing. I mean, that scene is beautiful, but before he leaves the office, David Whittaker delivers the rescue and that is him leaving the show in rude health to continue. And so the rescue is his kind of parting shot as the story editor, I would say, basically setting it up to run and run and run. We've got a special guest this time, so it's a big hello to Steve Manfred. Hello, Happy New Year! <laughs> yeah, keep <laughs> yeah, that going. Yeah, I, I, I did I hear someone you... else saying that the other day. <laughs> not to not to me, but um, but yeah, I thought okay, yeah. it's not too late. <laughs> well, you never know; we might materialize in ancient Rome when the year began in March. Ah, true, oh, yes. yeah. And we're all up there now. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, welcome to Something Who, Steve. Great to have you on. Perhaps you could introduce yourself to listeners of the podcast. Well, I am a long-time Doctor Who fan since 1982, living in west-central Wisconsin, USA. And I have the good fortune to be a geographically physician close to Neil Gaiman when he lived here. <laughs> and I became his go-to person for the first or be able to see the new Doctor Who at all because we didn't have it for the first year on the network here. Uh-huh. So I, I was his, uh, he called me his dealer. <laughs> <laughs> we would meet in, in dark places so in our restaurants halfway between us and between me or his personal assistant Lorraine and hand over a disc that uh, had files that might have come from a torrent. I think the statute of limitations is run on this now. <laughs> <laughs> Neil had written a forward for a novel that Kim Newman wrote. I can't remember the title now, but it was it was this higher-end novel series of hardbacks that came out mm-hmm. towards, the, 
toward the tail end of the wilderness years. Right, yeah. Yeah, Neil David, my favorite, and wrote an introduction to that where he talked about how exciting the war, he, war game was. He hadn't seen it since it first aired, mm. but he remembered a few things about the war games. And he also said in there, I, I don't think it would be good for me as an adult to see it again now. <laughs> Probably wouldn't hold up, he, he thought. And I, and I finally read that thing after I, after I got to know Neil, and I went, oh, no. No, war games holds up. You should yeah, see yeah. this. <laughs> and it wasn't out on DVD yet. So I had to make one, a copy for him to see, and mm. give that to him. And then, sure enough, what in the very first draft of Doctor's Wife, there's the time where I messaged you. <laughs> and I said, aha! He picked up on that. Yes. <laughs> you said you bridged, you made a connection. Yeah, that um, goes back to the Gallifrey One forums. Uh, Stephen Moffat was there. Mm, yep. During the David Tennant years, he was talking yes, about yeah. that. <laughs> and I would basically collate anything he said that was interesting to Neil and email Neil with what he said. So he was kind of one way at that point. But then the Hollywood writers' strike of 2007 happened. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this list of the companies that they were striking against. And Neil being a, a member of the Directors Guild East in America was honoring the strike and had shut down any work he was doing with at that time. And one of the listed companies was BBC Worldwide Americas. And I thought, oh, but Stephen Moffat is also doing stuff, stuff in the States. He's got to be a member of the, of the Writers Guild here too. Hmm. But he's still writing for, for Doctor Who and whatever else he was doing at the time in Britain. And I thought, wait a minute, are you sure you should still be working in that Stephen Moffat? Because there's a strike happening. Mm-hmm. And... I wind up being this go-between between the two of them, discussing whether or not they should be on strike. And that was kind of the first contact they ever had, was, was that whole discussion. And that eventually turned out they were fine the way they were, was because residency, where you are, and where you, mm-hmm. what, what your citizens are, and all, that, that all figured into it. And then eventually the strike was settled, too. But then the, at the Gallifrey One Convention that followed directly on, so this would have been February of 08, I guess, now, I had already heard a different but very well-connected grapevine a, a few months before this that Stephen Moffat was going to be taking over the show. Right. But it wasn't announced yet, and he was still a guest of Gallifrey mm-hmm. One that year. And mm-hmm. I can remember uh, sing, sitting directly behind him in a video room where he's doing a commentary with Arnold Blumberg on Blake. Live commentary in the room, and mm-hmm. he said something or other about, yeah, well, next year we'll have to get a bigger room, because it was it was overflowing out, out into the... Mm-hmm hallway we're gonna have to be on the main stage and i'm standing right behind him i took great effort for will not to say yeah right you're not gonna be here next year you're gonna be running the show <laughs> but i knew that and he didn't know that i knew that mm, right but then I, I made a point of dropping hits to both him and to paul cornell who was also there that year in the lobby when, when you could wander up to people is dropping hints that neil gaiman was loving the show and that he was interested in maybe writing for it Mm-hmm. Then I knew, okay, I know these two might be on the same plane going home. They might discuss this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it was on the same plane, but I know that they discussed this. And because then shortly thereafter, Deal had a book signing tour in the UK. He went, mm-hmm. and, he went and saw Paul Cornell at his place during that. And very shortly after that, there was a, uh, a dinner meeting, which I know that uh, uh, Stephen Moffat and, and Deal talked about, where... Moffat did reveal that, yes, I'm, I'm going to be thinking over the show, not announced yet. And Neil said, yes, Steve Baffert told me that a few months ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then they started pitching ideas back and forth. And one of them was the idea that turned into The Doctor's Life. And a big it, it, starting point was actually what you called the subplot on the podcast. It wasn't. It was, it was, like, it was the main plot to begin with. Look, Basically, doing the classic story of the, the most dangerous game, you know, the a hunter and the hunted, mm-hmm. with, with the TARDIS having been taken over by something and made the dangerous place the Doctor has to now navigate and survive it. Yeah. That was, a, that was the origin point of the story. But as the more he thought about it, and he was thinking about this on the plane right over, and then he, myself, and his daughter Holly all met at a table at a restaurant here, here in my town when I was handing him over the latest DVDs, because I think the Series 4 had just debuted that same week. Mm, right. And we talk it over, and he had realized on the way here that 
you can't really have the doctor be the one under that kind of threat because he knows the turf too well. He's got too much of a home field advantage. Mm. Yeah. So really, it ought to be the companion who's in there, and the doctor yeah. stuck outside, and he's got to save the companion. He's in in that in that hunt. He's like, okay, well, if the, if it's been taken over, what's happened to the normal TARDIS? It, it's soul, it's it's life force, it's whatever you want to call it. Matrix. Mm-hmm. I think that came of it. It was yeah. never meant to be the, the Galfrey Matrix. It's just like a computer mm-hmm. Matrix that runs it. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's happened to that? And that spiraled into, well, it's get, you can have to take it out of the TARDIS and put it somewhere else. What if that's a person? And then the, the, the light bulbs went off and, ooh, yeah. now we've got something here. And it, it all developed that, that way. So it kind of went back to front in the, the development point. It is, indeed, the episode does. And that's the way the TARDIS communicates. It communicates in reverse sometimes. Mm-hmm. One, one of the very last writing things that went into the final drafts was when when it became clear that one of the big things were that this episode is about is about communication between the two mm-hmm. of them and how this is the first time mm-hmm. that they can finally talk. And I'm sitting there at looking at the draft that Neil's looking at me and I'm going, um, yeah, this should really about be about communication. So then he has them say hello at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing she says. I just wanted to say hello. And he sets it up then you get the way you run in a bit at the beginning where she says goodbye to she, she says goodbye at the start yes yeah yeah, yeah and that <laughs> whole thing and that was kind of also in response to another one of the best notes was let's make them cry with crying mm-hmm. capital letters <laughs> i'm talking with elizabeth morton who's an actor and also writer so mm-hmm. hello hello elizabeth Nice to be with you, Richard. Hello. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, the, the reason we're, we're talking to you, I suppose, is twofold. I mean, it's to talk about your writing and to get into some of that. And it's also because you have a connection partly by association, but also it's some actual things here and there to do with Doctor Who as well. Yes. Do you want to share to share with your listeners what that association is? Why don't I I give yes. a version of my association with Doctor Who. So I'm married to Peter Davison, who was the fifth Doctor. Also, this is complicated even now for me. So I am the stepmother-in-law of David Tennant because David married my stepdaughter, Georgia. Um, yep. I'm also mum of Louis and Joel. They're both actors. Louis most recently was in a series called Vikings and Paul Dark. Joel is more of a musician, but he's been in Big Finish Audio, Survivors, uh-huh. The Doctor Who Story. So that that's my kind of immediate connections. But of course, there are the connections go further because just in terms of we know Sue Virtue and Stephen Moffat because our two boys grew up with their two boys. Right. Um, interesting Doctor Who little kind of trivia is that Peter's real name is Moffat and Peter was working with Sue producing something and the boys were quite little and so we met them for the first time and Sue and Stephen who this was before Doctor Who I think it was before it had come back but we have a Louis Moffat because that's Peter's real name and we have a a Joel Moffat and they have a Louis Moffat and uh, Joshua Moffat and the <laughs> boys were, became quite friendly and we would you know they grew up together a bit and it's sometimes confusing well it's been very confusing for the boys with the, with the Louis Moffat's Joshua and Joel Moffat but occasionally people will slightly muddle up Sue Virtue, Sue Moffat and of course I'm Mrs Moffat as well we're both Mrs Moffat and this is all sort of Doctor Who fun yeah. Yeah, so there are many connections. And of course, when I met Peter, Doctor Who was off the air, but he was working with someone called Bill Baggs. Do you know who yeah. is big in the Doctor Who community? And that's when Peter first met Mark Gatiss, because Mark was very much involved because he was a Doctor Who fan. And and then it was wonderful to see, as time moves forward, to see that they're now involved with Doctor Who, You know, whereas we remember them as those very early days of, of doing comedy, League of Gentlemen, yeah. 
I mean, I could go on and on with, with the strange uh, <laughs> trivia, but here we are today. And yes, sometimes I think that my writing, when I met Peter, I was writing, but I often wonder if it's my sort of escape into my time traveling world of my head <laughs> to get away from all the sci-fi, yeah. um, which I love. But, you know, I'm leaving that up to my boys. Two boys are very big Doctor Who fans, so they're interested in writing and, and various Doctor Who related projects. So not not only have I got Peter, I've got the boys and it's so it's uh, but yeah. 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 Thanks for interviewing us today. Yeah. Well, look, th- thanks for thanks just for giving me your time, and particularly thanks for uh, for talking to me through um, somebody vandalising the outside of your place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your uh, your documentary was a was a story, and uh, this podcast has become a story as well. You know, we'll we'll, yes. we'll, we'll always remember the, the day they started drilling outside Matthew's uh, apartment. Yeah, you interviewed three of us, <laughs> including the jackhammer. <laughs> If it's unusable, then... I think it's funny. <laughs> yeah. I actually think it's funny. I don't think yeah. there are many podcasts around that you have two guests and a drill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to make it a regular feature, but definitely, definitely, it, 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 will, it will add. It'll add to this one. So, so yeah, yeah. And we we love the sense of the absurd as well. So it's great. <laughs> very good. Thank you. Well, so... thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun. Have you already done a podcast with him, with his character Simon, or did you just meet in person? Uh, we met in person. Right. Very good. I can't help feeling that, that you actually introduced us, Paul, at, at um, Missing Be- Believed White Bill. Well, literally like in person. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, I remember it so well. It was a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful moment. <laughs>